the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to The Advocate with your host, Nick Phillips. And now, here's your host, Nick Phillips. Good evening, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another edition of The Advocate. And this is a C uh, COVID-19 advocate, as always, until this is over. And uh, we've been talking about COVID so much, and it's been permeating everything we do. We have to look at different uh, perspectives to find out where does it creep up next. One of the big things we have is to find out where we can believe in what we're hearing, either in the news or on the Internet. And uh, we have a returning guest, Professor John Kersey from Cuyahoga Community College. We're going to be talking about Internet disinformation again. John, as always, thank you for joining us. Nick, always great to be back with you and on The Advocate. Well, thank you so much. I, I tell you, this is a consistent and an ongoing problem, is that we're all very, very hungry for news about uh, not only COVID-19, but we're interested in hearing about our country and, and how things are going. And uh, a lot of people are relying on the Internet, relying on YouTube, relying on Google. And you're our expert to tell us what's going on. Uh, there, there's been some recent video concerning police brutality in Chicago. Tell us about that and, and how people have been drawn into that circumstance. Nick, you set it up so well. The fact that people are relying so much more on videos that they see on the Internet, especially on their cell phones, is extremely telling in this era of disinformation. There were uh, riots and some looting in Chicago over this past weekend. I did a little bit of digging on that and discovered that somebody had put up a video that alleged that the police had killed a suspect. And that video, which, by the way, is completely false, but that video was viewed 100,000-plus times in just a handful of hours between a police incident that did happen in Chicago on Sunday afternoon and when the looting began in that city on Sunday night. Uh, that kind of prompted me to go back because we've had a summer of discontent, so to speak, in the United States. A lot of oh, protest, yeah. a lot a lot of protest, a lot of um, dissatisfaction over the status quo. And I remembered a Wall Street Journal article I had read in June that indicated that there were 20 million plus people who had viewed on Facebook videos of incidents of police violence in the United States, or at least they were supposed to be police violence in the United States. But we discovered that these videos actually came from the nations of Pakistan and Botswana. So they were obviously disinformation efforts that were probably originated by foreign countries that are trying to create dissension and stir up unrest in our own country. And by golly, I hate to say it, but boy, these videos sure seem to be successful. Well, well, they do. And I know we'll get into this a little later, talking about the tips that we should be aware of on how to spot disinformation. Because uh, one of the things you mentioned is if there is something out there that you look at and you really say, oh, my God, I can't believe that, and it triggers this emotional response just by looking at it, that alone should be a red flag, I would think. 
It sure should. And as you said, we'll talk more about it later. I do have about five tips I want to give for people for how to spot it. But it is important for us to recognize that this is not just in the United States. It's happening all over the world. Uh, it's impacting us a lot. But in Eastern Europe, in Latvia, uh, people there were being persuaded that Canadian soldiers had somehow COVID-19 into that nation. And in Lithuania, uh, the COVID-19 was being blamed on NATO troops. And these were just a small part of different fake news, disinformation forgeries, which we know came out of Russia and were aimed at uh, NATO nations all across Europe, but specifically at Eastern European nations, trying to get them to um, oppose each other and dislike each other. And anytime you see posts that try to create disunity or dissension or strife, those are the hallmarks of Russian disinformation campaigns. And they have been for many decades, even going back to the Soviet Union times, when the Soviet Union engaged in this very heavily in the Cold War. Uh, so if you see something that seems suspicious and it's trying to pit one group against another or saying bad things about one group emanating from another, that openly, that, that instantly arouses my suspicion that it could be disinformation. And uh, as I think I had mentioned to some of your listeners in a previous interview, I have a blog, www.dicampaigns.com, and I chronicle some of these. And the classic case that I uncovered was in uh, 2016 in Houston, Texas, when a, a pro-Texas supposedly group and a pro-Muslim supposedly group set up a rally and a counter-rally at the same day, the same time, the same place, right across the street from each other in downtown Houston. And both of these groups had more than half a million combined followers on Facebook. And, of course, neither one was genuine. They both were fake. They came out of malicious actors that were based at the Internet Research Agency in St. Petersburg, Russia. So there it is, that disunity, that dissension, and trying to pit one group of Americans against another group of Americans. That's a very common disinformation tactic that we all need to be on guard against. You know, as you talk about this, and I'm listening about uh, how this cyber uh, attack goes on and these multiple attacks, one of the things that strikes me is that for the average person, I say the average American, I guess I have to define what an average American is. I think it's a person who thinks they're computer literate. Uh, they do have access to the Internet, uh, now with smartphones more available than ever. And when they have a question about NATO or they have a question about Black Lives Matter, they just grab their phone, they tap in a few words, and suddenly uh, these topics come up. But, but they don't come up saying they're, they're coming up from uh, Iran or coming up from Russia. They come up saying this is what the Google search shows. Uh, this shows what Facebook has. This shows what YouTube has. These are all very American, very familiar logos where it appears that this is the source or there's some kind of approval or authenticity or authority to, to this information. Um, how, how much does that play with the American mind to go in and look at, the, at, look at these familiar logos and then see these terrible things? Nick, it's so accurate, and my first top tip to spot this information is to check the source and to get beyond your typing or saying something into your phone 
and then looking at who actually published it and who actually shared that information to begin with. Any site that doesn't clearly state what I would describe as editorial responsibility, who's responsible for putting it, is not trustworthy, and you should be very suspicious, and you shouldn't share it. Uh, the real problem comes, in my opinion, with younger audiences. The number one search engine for younger people, I'm talking you know, teens, 20s, even some people right. in their 30s, is now YouTube. And what that means is that when they type that into the YouTube search engine or they talk into it, the first thing that's going to pop up is a video. And videos uh, do tug more at emotions. And as we're learning, they're a lot easier to, uh, to use for deceptive purposes. Uh, maybe later on we can talk about the moon disaster video that uh, some people from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology put out recently. But the key thing from my perspective is to check the source. And again, on DI campaigns, you can find uh, a big box that talks about ways that you can check sources to see how accurate that they are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're, we're going to want to talk about uh, the moon disaster. We're going to talk about YouTube. And, and uh, we're familiar with Photoshop, how you can put somebody's head on a different body. Uh, but with video, you could make it appear that people are saying things they never really said. Uh, and uh, sometimes I have the feeling we're just so gullible as, uh, as average people looking at this stuff. And we, we tend to just wrap our arms around the dramatic emotional stuff without questioning it much. Is that a prevalent uh, idea going on that we're, that's adding to our divisiveness in this country? Yes, along with something that we look at a lot in media and journalism, I call it confirmation bias, or the, the, prof the profession calls it confirmation bias. As human beings, we're much more likely to look for stories that match what we believe, and we're much more likely to share stories and information that match what we believe. So if we see a video that matches what we think is accurate, or we see a picture that matches something that we believe is accurate, and again, it might be emotionally, in fact, it probably is emotional, but it might be rational or intellectual as well, we're going to become much more susceptible to sharing that without checking to verify its accuracy. And again, there's a ton of inaccurate information out there. In our last uh, interview time, we talked about the anti-vaxxers and the information they're putting out to try to counter vaccines. And in many places around the world, and again, this stems out of Russia, there's an active campaign to make people believe that the new 5G cell phone service that comes out causes COVID-19. And there are instances of people around the world that have actually set fire to cell phone towers carrying that new technology. Well, we're going to take a short break here momentarily, but uh, with, with doing that, uh, I want to get back into the, the psychology and how psychology really seems to be exploited in, in all of this as part of national agendas. And we'll talk about some of the countries that are effectively using this, and we, we can tell how effective they are by how this country is divided. And I think part of their national strategy is that it's success. We're talking to Professor John Kersey from Cuyahoga Community College. We're talking about Internet disinformation and how it's affecting our lives every day. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back after these words. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on The Advocate. Don't go away.
Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another segment of The Advocate, talking to Professor John Kersey from Cuyahoga Community College about Internet disinformation and how it affects our lives. Uh, John, again, thank you, as always, for joining us. Great to be here. You know, as we were talking um, during the last time, we were talking about uh, how we're so dependent and influenced by the Internet. Uh, there, there's a story we wanted to talk about, about the moon disaster video. Uh, tell us about that. Sure, Nick. The uh, NASA and the Nixon administration had prepared a speech for President Nixon to give in case the Apollo 11 mission failed. And the thrust of the mission, the, the thrust of the speech was if Armstrong and Aldwin had not been able to lift back off from the moon and remain stranded there, Nixon would put out a televised address to the nation about it. He never gave the speech. Obviously, there was no need to give it because the mission was a great success. But some researchers at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology decided to actually make the video. So what they did is hired an actor and a voice actor, basically, and he read the speech. They used technology to make the speech sound like Nixon. Then they took Nixon's 1974 resignation speech, which appeared all over the nation on TV, and they changed Nixon's mouth. And basically, they created that moon disaster video, and it's out there on the web right now where you can actually see it. And again, people might think this is an actual video. A president actually gave this speech, when in reality, it never happened. And obviously, the moon missions were a great success. And it looks so real. Uh, and it goes many times viewed without question. Correct. Uh, and when something like this, this jaw-dropping stuff happens, uh, what is there any hope for us to try to check it out and see whether or not it's valid or not? What should we watch again, for? Again, it goes back to that step we talked about earlier, checking the source. Is this source reliable? Is it somebody that's trustworthy? Is it some source that you would have a lot of belief in? In this case, when you go to moondisaster.org, they actually explain the entire project. They explain why they did it. And they did it in part as a warning that people can produce what's called deep fake videos that make you think A is B or B is C. And that can really move people emotionally, as we're seeing in the United States this summer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, there are, there are countries uh, that actually have cyber disinformation on their agenda. This stuff is real, and, and you've done some research into that area. Tell us about some of the countries that are deliberately trying to adversely affect this country and, and to divide us? We've already talked about one, Russia, and it's apparent the uh, National Security, uh, National Counterintelligence Security Center last week put out a warning that Russia is trying to interfere in the 2020 elections, and it's their assessment that the NCS, the, and the NCSC, that's what it's called, it's their assessment that the Russians are actually trying to interfere in a way to harm Joe Biden's uh, attempt at getting elections. The same group, again, our national counterintelligence security people are reporting that China is interfering in the election and they're doing it to try to defeat Donald Trump and to try to get Joe Biden elected. And a third nation that the NCSC people have identified as being big in disinformation for a different set of reasons is Iran. So all three have active campaigns going on that appear in social media in the United States aimed at influencing hearts and minds. Now, I will point out that the Facebook and Twitter people are getting better and better at spotting 
these types of campaigns. And when they do spot them or if the government spots them in reports, they do fairly quickly remove uh, the content authors from that. But it doesn't happen right away. And some of their malicious activities get out there. And as we've seen in the case of um, the police violence video, sometimes they're viewed tens of millions of times before they're removed. So sometimes the damage has been done. Uh, can you add much to the understanding as to politically, why would China do this? Uh, because if, if they're showing and causing dissension here in the United States, how does this help China? Well, that's a simple one, Nick. China's been following something called a three warfare strategy now for 20 years. And one of the three strategies is uh, media warfare. It's written right into their playbook. And what they're trying to do is influence public opinion, not only in China, but all over the world, to make people think more toward um, the Chinese way of thinking. And one of their current things is the South China Sea. Uh, the South China Sea doesn't belong to China. It's just what it's named. Uh, China has no more territorial rights to it than Mexico has to the Gulf of Mexico. But having said that, right. what China has been doing is uh, targeting the Philippines, targeting Vietnam, targeting Malaysia, targeting nations around the South China Sea, and trying through disinformation campaigns to convince them that China is their friend, that the United States is their enemy, and that China doesn't pose any threat, when in fact China's actually been making artificial islands and putting military material and military weapons onto these islands for some time now. Is the goal strictly political influence and economic reasons, or is there some other reasons? It was until about five or six months ago, and then a huge third reason came about, which we all know it's COVID-19. Uh, the, the, the outbreak did come out of China. And what China has been doing more recently is trying to convince the world that it's not responsible for it uh, through disinformation activities and uh, blaming uh, the Trump administration and the United States government as saying that, that they've, been, um, they've been negligent and they haven't been doing things as well as they could. Uh, fortunately, uh, there is a group, uh, not in the United States, but a group in Australia called the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, and they've been really keeping good track of what's going on in China. And uh, again, they have technology that helps track campaigns, and they can find inauthentic accounts that are being done from China that are aimed at other countries. And again, at my website, DI Campaigns, I've actually put a link to one of the most recent reports from the Australia Strategic Policy Institute that is um, called Automating Influence on COVID-19. And it explains how China's malicious actors are basically using what's known as bots or automated accounts to try to um, channel public opinion and, and promote disinformation. You know, we, we talked a little bit about Russia and, and their uh, activities in China. Uh, it's interesting you also mentioned Iran. What, what is their interest? What, what's going on with Iran? Uh, terrorism. They're supporting pro-terrorism organizations and discrediting Western nations through publishing of false narratives. An article in Reuters a few years ago identified more than 70 websites in 15 different countries that are basically coming out of something called the International Union of Virtual Media, which is headquartered in Tehran, which is Iran's capital. On one example, they have a website called NileNet Online that's supposed to be promising Egyptians true news about what's happening in Egypt, but it's coming from Tehran. It's not coming from Egypt.
Oh, my goodness. Well, what are some tips for us laymen here to, to spot things? You mentioned uh, something that looks particularly emotional as suspect. Yeah, well, that's probably my second tip after checking the source, which is checking the tone. A disinformation is often designed to trigger an emotional response. So if you see content that uses emotional language to try to elicit a strong reaction, and I'm talking about fear or anger, that's a hallmark of a disinformation activity. So I would be suspect of that. And then I would also check the story, and by that is verified by multiple sources. We know that there were riots in Chicago because multiple media sources, you know, ABC, NBC, CBS, CNN, Fox, AP News, all of that covered all of that. If you run a search, you might find that um, independent fact checkers have already debunked the story. And if they have, then, of course, you should not um, do anything to spread it. And then another thing you can do, if there's an image, there are software that allows you to check images. Google has something called a reverse image search. And TinEye is another source where you can actually post an image there and find out where it first appears. And I cover that in my website, dicampaigns.com. Well, it's interesting. I'm really glad you're, you're spending your professional efforts on sort of sorting this stuff out for us. It's um, very difficult uh, for the average person to really figure out what is going on as far as what's true and what's not. The, uh, the name of the uh, website, again, is dicampaign.com. DI, which is short for disinformation. And, again, you could type the whole thing in. But dicampaigns.com is what it's all about. And, Nick, from my perspective, it's absolutely critical, and there's a simple reason why. Uh, we value information in our democracy. We believe that it's critical that we have fair and honest evaluation of what's going on and that that it leads to a kind of a marketplace and an exchange of ideas, which informs the electorate and makes it possible for us to cast an intelligent ballot. A part of disinformation campaigns are trying to skewer that and corrupt and poison that. And that's why I call the people who do it malicious actors, because it really is evil what they're trying to accomplish. Well, it certainly is. Well, as we get closer to Election Day, we'll have you back on again to talk about uh, the 2020 election and how we're recognizing this disinformation. So in any event, John Kersey, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Nick. Have a great day. We'll have you too. Have a good one. We're going to take a short break. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK, The Advocate. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another segment of The Advocate. In these last two segments of the show tonight, we're going to be talking to State Representative Dave Greenspan, who's going to give us an update on what's going on with the state of Ohio in this COVID time of uh, life for all of us. And uh, Representative Greenspan, thank you so much for joining us, as always. Oh, Nick, thank you. I appreciate being on, and and uh, I hope you know every, everyone's enjoying the uh, nice summer weather we're having. Well, at least there's something we can enjoy. This uh, COVID thing has just been dominating every aspect of our lives. So, uh, And we know that government is still going on, and that's why we're so appreciative of you coming on, just sort of updating us on what, what's happening while we're all sort of weathering this storm of the virus. Uh, but uh, you know, what, how, how are things looking right now? We're here in the middle of August, 
and uh, we've been living with COVID for a while. We've been living with uh, partial shutdowns, remote working for a lot of people, and schools coming up. From Columbus, how does it look? Well, I mean, obviously, you know, the, the governor and the, and the director of health have, have uh, issued in county health departments a number of precautions and, and orders in order to, uh, in their opinion, keep us safe. And what we're seeing uh, here in Cuyahoga County, uh, in particular, since we, we can talk about that, is that uh, our numbers are moving in the right direction uh, insofar as hospitalizations and, and, and deaths and and, uh, you know, the number of cases every day obviously is going up, but so is the number. So are, it, it's going up um, it, it, similarly as we're seeing the number of tests given. Um, what's happening is our positivity rate, meaning the amount of those who test positive as a result of, of the test, uh, that number is now going down. We were in the, in the mid 6%. Uh, now we're in the, in the low fives. Um, so that obviously is an indicator to look towards because obviously as we test more than individual number of cases intuitively will go up as we're seeing right now. But what we're seeing is a positivity rate level off and start to decline. And, you know, we talk about 5.3% wherever we are, um, you know, with, with the positivity rate. If you look at some states like Florida, as an example, uh, they're at 19%. Mississippi is at 26%. Um, so we, we have done, you know, our, our governor asked us to do a number of things to stay safe and, and which we've, we've done, uh, and we're starting to see the numbers come down. Cuyahoga County is still in the red category, and we're in the red category not necessarily because of what we're seeing insofar as the seven indicators. Remember that he, the governor laid out a seven-indicator plan. Um, to to, to outline how you fall into which category, whether it's orange, yellow, orange, red, or purple. So what's happened with Cuyahoga County is that uh, we were as high as six at one point. Uh, I'm looking at the numbers right now. Uh, Last week, we were at three, um, at two, I'm sorry. We are now at three uh, categories. Um, But even, and the number that drives us being out of the red level. So last week we were at two. And if, you, if, you, if you're familiar with the scale, zero to one up to seven categories puts you at yellow. Two to three puts you at orange, four to five red, and six and seven puts you at purple. As I said, we were at one point trending at six. We did go down to two. So you would intuitively think, well, if we're two of two of the seven and two to three is orange, why are we not an orange? There is another indicator that they're looking at, and that has to do with the number of cases per 100,000, number of 100, how many folks per 100,000. Last week, I haven't seen this week's numbers, but last week we were just over 146 cases per 100,000. The guidance is to be below 100,000. I'm sorry, to be below 100. So we actually, we're, we're, we're checking into another category, which put us up um, and kept us at re- at red. Um, so that's kind of where we are as far as Cuyahoga County is concerned. Uh, as far as the uh, schools, because obviously we have a lot of folks that are um, are, are looking at, at going back to school. The governor, yes, I thought, that, that in his time. Con- yeah, yeah, and the governor, I thought, in his press conference this past Tuesday, was advocating for schools to open in person. Um, he brought in three health professionals. To basically make from uh, from Columbus, Cincinnati, and Dayton, these were were 
pediatricians and, and some epidemiologists talking about what is it that they that he's looking for or you know what what is it that we can do to start schools back safely and the, even the American Academy of Pediatrics is advocating for children to go back in person into school so our our in my district my five public school districts created a protocol that would allow students to have two options families have two options in person five days a week or distance learning from home at their discretion, whichever the family decided was best for their for their for their child. And um, our county board of health came out with a recommendation, not an order, but a recommendation that reads a lot like an order. And what happened was, is some of these, as I'm hearing, some of these insurance uh, and litigation type folks were referring to reporting back to the schools that um, this could be problematic, even though it's not an order, it's a recommendation for distance learning. And so my five public school districts erred on the side of caution and are going back in a distance learning environment, at least as I understand it in a few of the districts, uh, in, in they're gonna reassess the, the protocol every two weeks. So the public schools in, in, in District 16 are going back in a distance learning environment the private schools, um, and because the order isn't isn't a mandate, or I'm sorry, the recommendation isn't an order, it's not a mandate, it's at the discretion of the school districts, the private schools are going back. And so you may have it in a neighborhood as an example. Hmm. We're, um, as we're, we're talking about this, the uh, question I have is the question of what, where does this sit with regard to science? Oh, I'm sorry, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Yeah, I think you're blocked out for a little bit. I had a question with regard to the question between, say, civil rights and a right to have an education versus the science, the epidemiological yeah. science of, of spread. How, do, how does right. this rack up? I know a lot of people are pushing back because they think they have a right to an education and they need to have the kids somewhere during the workday. But on the other well, hand, yeah. how wise is it from a science point of view? Well, and that's just it, right? That's 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 the big issue because part of restarting the economy and our unemployment went from nearly 26% down to around 10%, um, you know, in the last few months. Um, but we've got folks who are in a situation where unless their children are in daycare or schools, and by the way, the governor opened up daycares effectively 100%. Um, so that's now available to families. But with school-age children, what are what are the options if the district decides to make, you know, in Cuyahoga County, particularly Lorraine County is going back in five days in person, you know, um, Cuyahoga, the, most of the school districts are taking a different approach. So the, the concept in the constitution of Ohio basically states that, you know, the state shall assist in the funding of public schools and public and education shall be offered. There's no, there's no, um, violation is the wrong word, but there, there's no, um, default that education is not being offered. It's just the manner in which it's being offered. And then you can go into the discussion of the quality of the education. That's not, that's not the point of what, of what I'm bringing up right now. What I'm saying is, is education is being offered uh, to our students. Uh, it, it just depends on the district it, throughout the state, which protocol of educational offering is being provided in those school districts. Um, so that's being offered. As far as the science is concerned, and I believe you know, that's where the governor was going with this. You know, that's why he had on the show um, physicians talking about, supported by the American Academy of Pediatrics, of uh, pediatricians, that it's okay to send the kids back to school with the proper protocols. 
And even the lieutenant governor said that he plans on sending his children back uh, to school when school reopens here in the next few weeks. So the schools are taking protocols. I know, depending on the on the school that I'm talking to, um, you know, some are uh, some, and obviously the mask, you know, mandate is in place. But some are going even further and having these plexiglass shields that the children will sit in their desks and be behind, you know, plexiglass shields to prevent the spread. And as different and difficult as it is, based on the environment that we're living under, based on the science, uh, which is where the superintendents and where the, the, the CDC and where the, you know, the Ohio Department of Health are coming up with these protocols, I would have to believe it's based in whatever scientific information they have in front of them right now. And we know that with this virus, that that information changes. We know that back in March, when 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 we started with this, uh, dealing with this here in Ohio, the expectation was is, is most, if not everyone, should should you know shelter in place uh, until such time as as more information or the or the or the virus would diminish in its severity. We've learned right, since right, then right. that yeah that, that we can operate um, a little more freely, but still take precautions. Well, we're going to have to be very vigilant, uh, obviously, because uh, exposure can be just on a massive scale in schools. We're talking to State Representative Dave Greenspan from the Ohio Legislature from up here in the Cleveland area. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back with Representative Greenspan after these words. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK, The Advocate. We'll be right back. Don't go away. Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with our final segment of The Advocate for tonight. We're so happy to have with us State Representative Dave Greenspan uh, talking to us about what's going on in Columbus and how things are looking from the state legislator point of view. So, uh, Dave, again, as always, thank you for joining us. Oh, well, thank you again. I appreciate it. And we're talking about schools and science and COVID. And it uh, looks like most or many schools in the state are going to be opening up to some degree and under some circumstances. Uh, will the state be playing any role financially with regard to how the schools reopen, or are, are we moving, uh, as we always move, with the relationship between the state and the individual school districts? Well, yeah, we we obviously the federal government has provided CARES Act money to the state for distribution um, to, var- to various entities. And school districts clearly are one of them. So we have been been assisting in providing CARES Act dollars to the schools uh, to be able to help them uh, receive or purchase the necessary supplies and related materials uh, for a, re- a safe return to school. So we have been working closely not only with schools but with with you know, cities, villages, counties, and townships uh, directly. Uh, some uh, counties and a few cities get direct aid from the federal government based on population. Most in Ohio do not. So we have been, as the state, been working with them to ensure that they get the financial resources they need to to address this issue. You know, since the uh, economy has slowed down across the country and actually around the world, uh, how has that impacted the revenue flow into the state as far as yeah. income taxes and, and that kind of thing? And how is the state responding? Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, we, we have seen a decline in revenue. Um, what I can say is, is, is th- there was there, you know, obviously our projections as to how well the economy will recover. Uh, we are recovering uh, a little, a little better than than uh, previously thought. 
um, but revenues are down. And that's why the governor recognizing that is, is requesting a 20% reduction in cost uh, for the agencies of the state. Not all, but, but most. Some, some think, you know, if you think about it, 90% of our state budget goes to three primary areas, education, Medicaid, and incarceration. So the governor's working diligently, obviously, not to have those deep cuts in those areas. Uh, and within the remaining 10% of the budget, which is around $7 billion, you know, this is where, you know, he is looking to find uh, significant savings. Um, so the, the, the initial projection right now is about a $3 billion revenue shortfall. Um, the budget is balanced, which means we've got to identify or the governor and develop the legislature $3 billion in order to help, um, you know, offset those, those losses and balance the budget. Right. So we, oh, by the way, what, what's, the, what's the total budget amount? What's the total number? It's about seventy billion. Seventy, so year. we're down three. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That so still looks yeah. fairly healthy, at least from a gross uh, position. Hey, I just have one question as I'm listening and thinking about the state of Ohio. Uh, in the old days, we call them the old days now, the pre-COVID days. Uh, we were talking about various things, and I, re I just came to mind one of the topics we talked about uh, back in January and late 2019 was the front license plate thing. And then right. COVID has sort of taken up everything. And I, I thought the law uh, involving the front license plate was to take effect in July. Uh, what is happening there? Yeah, well, that's gone into effect. So effective July 1st, uh, it is no longer a requirement to have a front license plate. You cannot be ticketed if your vehicle does not have a front license plate. And so um, so we're starting to see that you know happen you know. I've seen people take their front license plates off um, who didn't want it, and and and, and car dealerships are no longer required to sell uh, vehicles and place a front license plate on it. I, I remember there was discussion at the time that law enforcement wanted some type of front end identifier uh, on vehicles right. so that uh, law enforcement would be able to utilize some of their uh, techniques on that. Anything happen on that? Or is that well? Uh, and, and, yeah, get lost Senator, in the Senator, shuffle. Yeah, Senator McCauley and I uh, co-chair a, a Road to Ohio's Future Study Committee, and we're looking at different efficiencies within ODOT. But also, one of the charges in the committee is to is to look into this issue. So we we are trying. Obviously, it's difficult right now during these COVID times to have everybody come together uh, because it's a joint House and Senate committee come together to have these discussions. So we are we are trying as we. Uh, move through the next few months to identify ways for us to have those discussions. But it, it is it is something we are looking at. Unfortunately, we have been um, um, restricted in our ability to to you know, pull together. We've actually had to had to cancel a few meetings as it related to this. But but it is something that, oh, that we think. we are looking at. The um present location of the legislature, at least I mean location from the standpoint of what's going on. And what will be happening in the future? Uh, do we have any light at the end of the tunnel that we're seeing here? Any any good signs in a direction that maybe we can make some type of prediction of what will life be like here in the next six months? Well, I mean, obviously there's still legislative work that needs to be done. There 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 are a number of significant public policies that we're working on, and and we're going to to need to address them. And whether they're initiatives from the governor directly or whether legislative initiatives in either chamber 
we need to be able to address those. Um, right now, in, in, a, in a traditional year, um, a traditional General Assembly, um, July and August typically are months where we spend most of our time in our districts with constituent outreach and involving community events. I would say the community events issue clearly has been, has been non-existent. Uh, I can tell you that I'm, I am on the phone constantly with constituents on various issues, whether they be policy issues, unemployment issues, it just depends whatever issue is important to them and, and our office is engaged in that. And then also we take this time to work on policy as well uh, because we all have initiatives that we're working on. But during an election cycle is during the summer and during this time leading up to, to the November general election is also a time to focus on, on uh, election activities. So um, we have a few scheduled dates to return in September. Uh, there is needed date. The Senate is meeting regularly throughout the summer. I say regularly, they have a more predictable schedule than we do. And there's work that's still being done at the committee level and still policy work being done. Uh, you know, it shouldn't be confused with the fact that although we may not be in session, that work isn't being done. Work is being done. Uh, it's, and a lot of the work that's being done is in advance of when we do go back in the session from a legislative standpoint, meaning getting our legislation ready and getting support for our pieces of legislation. Right, right, right. You, you mentioned the election coming up in November. Uh, has the state of Ohio taken a position as to whether or not boards of elections will be conducting uh, essentially live voting polls, or will it be all by mail or more liberal absentee program, or uh, what's well, the sense down in Columbus? Yes. The Secretary of State, his intent is to have a uh, have in-person voting. Uh, I, I believe intuitively we're going to see a more robust uh, absentee. Now, we need to be clear, absentee is different than mailing. So we will we are anticipating a more robust absentee voting um, activity this General Assembly, uh, this election than we have in the past. Um, and but but I believe right now the Secretary of State's intent is to still offer in-person voting. Will this ultimately be a decision for the local boards of elections, or will the state be mandating certain things? No, no. So, so the, the the state will then come up with a standard protocol as to how to conduct elections. You know, one one of the charges of of, of the Secretary of State is that is that every voter in the state of Ohio shall have an equal access to the ballot, equal opportunity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if some counties have mail-in only and others have in-person and mail-in, then the argument could be that there is an inequitable uh, opportunity for voters to vote in elections. And so um, whatever the decision is, and right now the decision is in-person and absentee, uh, that is the decision that every voter within the state will be able to, to, um, to participate in the electoral process in. Doesn't seem to be too hot of a button here in Ohio, at least not not in the news media anyway. So we'll see how that develops as we we get by. Uh, we have just a couple seconds left here. Uh, is there anything that we can really expect expect to be making news from the state of uh, well from Columbus within the next thirty days? Well, I you know as we move into the next thirty days, so we're talking you know August through September. I, I believe you're going to see the legislature. Of both House and Senate in, in session uh, in a period in which we normally are not uh, to deal with issues of COVID, the economy, and, and, and some of the social unrest issues that we've been dealing with. So that is an unusual, 
a, a, a usual event for us, but the circumstance would provide us the opportunity to come together and help address these issues. Good. Good, good, good. Well, if COVID will still dominate. We'll be back with you next month to get another update and see what's going on in Columbus. Uh, State Representative Dave Greenspan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, as always. Thank you, and thank you for listening. We'll be back next week, same time, same station. So between now and then, have a, have a great and uh, safe and healthy week. Good night. And I sat and watched the Zanzibar sunset. Sat and drank my fresh mint tea.